Welcome to Visiting Professors, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. We arranged for Dr. Ruben Mesa to spend a day at the practices of two oncologists in the Florida Cancer Specialist Group, Drs. Jim Reeves and Bill Harwin, and to make rounds with these physicians, meeting a number of their patients and reviewing the cases. After this CME clinic day, we met to review the cases, beginning with a patient from the practice of Dr. Reeves, a 92-year-old woman with myelofibrosis. This is a very sweet lady that we started seeing about two years ago. She had lived in New York and had been diagnosed with myelofibrosis several years before and had been primarily on hydrea and had been on transfusions when she needed it, but was declining and really kind of moved down here to Florida to be closer to her family. And when we first saw her, we noted that she was quite weak and she had a history of a lot of weight loss and I believe she weighed less than 100 pounds at that point and had quite a large spleen that was clearly limiting her oral intake and in general just seemed to be in decline. She had not had ruxolitinib at that point. I think that she and her family both assumed that she was about ready for supportive and hospice care. So we talked about that option, and eventually we started her. I'm sure we started her on five milligrams once or twice a day. And as I've kind of come to expect, she had a pretty dramatic improvement in her quality of life. Her spleen shrank down to some degree to where it's still easily palpable, but much more comfortable for her. Her appetite improved. She began to gain weight, and then she became much more active with it. So, And that's the person that we've seen over the last year and a half or so when we've seen her. Her blood counts have been under good control. She has not required transfusions. Today was a bad day for her. She was diagnosed very recently with shingles, and this was on the right side of her neck extending onto her upper chest. And she was very, very uncomfortable with post-herpetic neuralgia from this. And so she's already had her antibiotic treatment for that. So much of today's visit was arranging for her to see one of the pain management doctors that has assured us in the area he'll see these patients quickly and see about getting nerve blocks done. Now, prior to when you started her care, she was being managed. Was that being by an oncologist? Yes, uh uh-huh. And Ruben, looking back at her history, do you think that she was started on ruxolitinib at the appropriate time or should have been started earlier by the other doc? Well, it's always tough to have that kind of retrospective scope, but I think in looking back, she probably would have benefited from it. I think in terms of the oncology community, there's been increasing comfort level with using the JAK inhibitors and using ruxolitinib in patients. So I think that clearly she has benefited without question. I think it's recognizing that, you know, despite her age, the impact of the disease and the impact on quality of life is very, very real. So it's rewarding to see Jim's experience that although she's in that 90-plus sort of spectrum of life, She clearly has had significant benefit in improvement of quality of life with the therapy. I'm just kind of curious, and I don't know, Jim, whether you can figure out why she didn't get started earlier. I mean, given that she responded so well, I mean, I don't know, medically, I guess, do you think that it was indicated from what you could tell? Do you have any idea why it wasn't started? Well, I think it was indicated, but for me personally, there's been a 
evolution from using ruxolitinib after its FDA approval, initially for patients who had very large spleens and as its primary indication, to a realization that the real benefit of the drug is the reduction in cytokines and other inflammatory stimuli, such that these patients virtually always have a dramatic improvement in their quality of life and that exceeds whatever benefit they get from uh, reduction in spleen size. So I have gradually become much more prone to use it earlier in the disease course. And I suspect a lot of hematologists and oncologists have gone through that same evolution in their approach to using the drug. When it first came out, you're kind of looking for that person with a huge spleen, but someone who has a mildly enlarged spleen, you might not go for it. Yeah, I wonder too, Ruby, you know, as we've been following this story from a CME perspective over the last few years, initially when the comfort trials came out, we actually were documenting that there was a lot of confusion about jack mutation status and benefit from ruxolitinib, that a lot of oncologists were under the impression you had to have the mutation in order to benefit. And then also, I don't know whether there was confusion about stage and whether or not it can be used. Any comments on that? Sure. I would say that it's definitely been a learning experience on a few levels. One, we clearly found that independent of whether someone has the JAK2V617F, they can benefit. I think we really figured out over time that many of the mutations, if not all, do lead to overactivation of the native JAK2. So whether that's calreticulin, whether that's MPL, whether that's JAK2, whether that's perhaps some of the other driver mutations. So an overly active JAK2 is a universal theme and why all these patients benefit. It clearly has been an evolution in terms of physician education, but I do think that that message has gotten out there. You know, two, I would say that people have learned more about the dosing. Initially, there was concern when a patient would have some anemia at the early onset with the therapy. We've recognized over time that that can stabilize over several weeks and that one does not have to overreact to some initial drop in the hemoglobin or the platelet count. And with that, I think there's been much more stability of dosing. Finally, I think as Jim had said with this patient in particular, you know, patients benefit who have just symptomatic burden from the disease. They don't necessarily need to have splenomegaly. So we've seen patients, whether they've been splenectomized or whether other cases we'll discuss later in today's discussion, you know, the presence of splenomegaly is really not required for a benefit of JAK inhibitor. So, Jim, what is this lady's life situation? Does she live by herself, with her family? How does she spend her time? Well, when we first saw her, she was living with her family. She's since been moved to an assisted living situation, but still usually comes in with a family member and seems to have a fair amount of family support to us. What about comorbidities? She's very stable otherwise. She has not had any other significant medical issues other than, you know, today when we saw her suffering from shingles. And, you know, except for the occasional minor infection, she's actually been very, very healthy. Performance status, again, prior to the zoster? I would rate her as an ECOG-1, Karnofsky 80 to 90 percent. So, Ruben, the zoster in this situation completely non-related or any connection? Actually, I would be suspicious. I mean, it's tough to know for certain, but I'd say that we clearly recognize zoster is probably the most common now 
infectious complication of JAK inhibitor use. As I was sharing with Jim, we've actually seen it more in the patients with polycythemia vera than those with myelofibrosis. In the response study in polycythemia vera, we saw it in maybe up to 7% of patients develop varicella. And I certainly have seen several patients that have developed this while on JAK inhibitor therapy. So I think it's a real phenomenon. I still think it's in a small minority. It's certainly less than 10%, but it's common enough that it needs to be really aware of. You know, Jim and I have the conversation, you know, should we be looking at the use of the varicella vaccine? And at the current time when we press that issue with our colleagues in infectious disease as well as the guidelines, you know, it's clear as a live vaccine that's still felt to be contraindicated in these patients. So I typically have them aware that zoster is a risk, and I do start them on antiviral therapy very promptly if there's even a suspicion of the symptoms of zoster. I've not gone to the length of prophylaxing. I think that might be overkill given still the low percentage. But if somebody feels like they're developing shingles, I certainly act. Any reason to think about holding off on the ruxolitinib until the zoster is more recovered, Ruben? It's a good question. At the moment, the JAK inhibitors are such that, you know, interrupting of dosing frequently can destabilize a patient. In general, I do try to keep it going evenly. We've had other patients who we saw today that are having elective surgical procedures. I do try to keep them going. I think to some degree, by the time they have zoster, you know, the water's under the bridge, as it were. I'm not sure that holding the medication necessarily would speed the recovery. So it's something I'm aware of. I utilize the antiviral therapy, but I do try to avoid interrupting the JAK inhibition. What would you predict, Ruben, in terms of duration of response? Hopefully this lady will recover from the zoster. It seems like up until this time she's done well. I guess she's been on therapy, Jim, more than a year? I think two years is what she's been on. What do we know, Ruben, about duration of response to ruxolitinib? And are there any ways to predict, you know, based on the clinical course, what the duration would be? It's a good question. On the comfort studies where people were fairly advanced when they were enrolled, the median duration of time on the study was three years, which leads me to believe that actually the median duration of benefit is probably longer because there are patients who came off study to receive commercial drug so that they were no longer obligated to the follow-up schedule of a trial. You know, I suspect that it's probably between three to five years, probably on average, but there clearly are people in which it is longer. There are patients who are on from the initial phase one, two studies of ruxolinib and MF from 2007 who remain on the therapy. So there clearly are some long-term benefits. There is also a consideration that treating people a little bit earlier in the disease course might lead to even much more durable benefits. That again, as we use it in the people that are more advanced, there clearly is benefit, but its major ability to impact the disease course might be if we were to consider it even slightly earlier in the course of the disease. Are there situations, Ruben, where you would consider it, and what do we know about using it in patients who are asymptomatic? So in patients who are asymptomatic, one we find is we really try to dig in and use questionnaires, particularly for myelofibrosis, the number of patients who are truly asymptomatic is fairly modest. I think we've seen even as patients who thought they were asymptomatic, once they're actually treated, actually don't recognize 
how much compensation they had done for the symptoms of the disease to have a pseudo-normal. But that being said, if I had a patient with significant splenomegaly, even if they were asymptomatic, I would still consider the therapy. You know, I view it as not a symptom therapy. It really is a therapy for the disease, of which the manifestations in everyone is slightly different. I was going to ask you about that because I know there's been a lot of talk back and forth and a lot of data presented about the question of, you know, what exactly is ruxolitinib doing and particularly whether it impacts the underlying disease, as you say, as opposed to symptoms and extends survival. What do we know about those questions nowadays? Well, I'd say clearly extend survival. A statistical analysis of both the Comfort 1 and Comfort 2 studies clearly show long-term benefit in terms of survival. It's difficult to quantify. Is that a year? Is that four years? But I could tell you it's both statistically a real phenomenon and as someone who cares for many patients with myelofibrosis, you know, I could say without question that the rate of my patients passing away with the disease clearly has decreased sharply over this four-year period of time. It really has made a strong impact. Looking at other long-term data, my colleague Claire Harrison presented the long-term data at ASH from the European study, the Comfort 2 study, and they saw as well improvements in allele burden, not resolution, but improvements, and a real tendency toward stabilizing or reducing fibrosis. You know, so I think there are a variety of different clues that suggest that there is a real impact on the disease course, even though it is not a remitting therapy. I'm always fascinated to hear the stories of patients and, you know, what it's like to watch them as they are treated. In a way, it's hard to think of many situations in oncology that are exactly like this, Jim. What did this lady look like when you walked in the room before you started the ruxolitinib? And how did her whole general demeanor and symptomatology change over the next couple months? Well, of course, she was 90 years old and just appeared quite frail and weak. As I recall, you know, she was sort of not really engaging very well, kind of, I wouldn't say slumped over in the chair, but she was not feeling very well and didn't have a lot of energy. And there were some discussions early on about whether we should try treating her at all, given her age. And I think the family thought that her prognosis and lifespan would be very limited at the time she came to Florida. So to me, it was quite gratifying to see her, you might say, become a walking, talking, interactive person again and, you know, to gain weight and just really have a very good year and a half. And hopefully she'll get back to that because I was planning on showing her off today to Reuben and it was too bad that she wasn't having a good day today. Interesting. And, you know, again, I keep thinking of Reuben about the fact that she hadn't been treated initially. You wonder whether or not age factors into these decisions sometimes. What do we know about the benefits of JAK inhibitor therapy based on age? Well, I could say that we clearly don't see an age in which it's not beneficial. You know, so as we look at different subgroup analysis, both in the comfort studies and now we presented subgroup analysis in the PERSIST study with procretinib, it's clear that being older does not preclude the benefit from these therapies. You know, so certainly would not use that in any way to really limit the utilization of therapy. I think it is a statement overall as we look at cancer therapies for elderly patients. You know, there have been multiple instances in the past where we have seen that although well-intentioned physicians de-intensify therapy because of age, frequently this has proven to show worse outcomes in that same group. 
So I think we have to be very mindful that de-intensifying therapy is sometimes not an optimal approach. 